Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Baz Verplanken from the University of Bath talks about the psychology of habit and how much of what we do is done at the same time in the same location. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Glynis Breakwell, the Vice-Chancellor, um, and I'm here to welcome you to this inaugural lecture this evening as Vice-Chancellor, but actually more particularly as a social psychologist. It's a great privilege for me to introduce our speaker this evening. Professor Bas Verplanken is one of the most significant social psychologists in Europe. He came to Bath as Professor of Social Psychology in 2006, having previously held that title at the University of Tromso in Norway for eight years. His earlier career, having been based first at Leiden, where he gained his PhD in 1989, and then at Nijmegen in the Netherlands, uh, where he rose, I believe, to the position of reader before moving on to Norway to take his first chair. Professor Verplanken is typical of his generation of European social psychologists, if I may be so bold as to say. Um, <laughs> because he focuses upon theory-informed, applied research. But he's much broader than many of his uh, contemporaries, in my opinion, um, because he goes on from that theory-informed, applied research to examine health and consumer and environmental psychology issues in context. It's tremendously important and valuable work at this time. His work revolves around the relationship of attitudes and behaviour, particularly habits. And it's the psychology of habit, which is his topic for his lecture this evening. I hope you'll join me in welcoming him, him to this lecture. And I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you very much, uh, Vice-Chancellor. I'm very honored that you uh, chair this session, so thank you for coming. Um, I want to welcome everybody, um, so welcome this evening. Um, I would like to start, actually, with a little thought exercise. Um, suppose you are in a completely new environment, um, somewhere you've never been before, and you're going to live there for a while, work there. Now, the first thing you will experience um, is what life is without habits and routines. Every step you make has to be thought about. You, you have to consider um, everywhere you have to go. Anything you, you do has to be a sort of conscious decision. Life is awkward and not always pleasurable. Now, gradually you will find your way. Um, you will find which things work for you, which things don't work for you, and you will gradually develop habits and routines. Life begins to feel normal again. Now, normal in this case is fluent, smooth, and that's what habits are doing. Um, you will find that habits are important and are actually making up the texture of our everyday experiences. So, what are habits? 
Now, if you look in the dictionary, you will find that habits are things we do regularly, um, a practice or a custom, a dominant disposition, um, addiction, we talk about habits, and in general, we may designate bad behavior as habits. Now, today I would like to describe habits in terms of three key features, and let's call them the three pillars of habits. Repetition, automaticity, and the fact that habits are context-cued. So let's start with, with repetition. Habits are grounded in repeating behavior. That's a very obvious observation. And as a matter of fact, psychologists always defined habits in terms of how many times um, a behavior has been executed. And we directly inherited this definition from the behaviorist school, which dominated psychology roughly the first half of the last century. These guys were very much preoccupied with observable behavior, hence the definition of habit as the frequency of past behavior. Now, repetition is important because the social psychology domain studies um, behaviors that are important in terms of, for instance, health consequences, consequences for the environment, um, for safety, and so on. And it's particularly the, the cumulative impact of repetition that makes these behavior significant and impactful. Now, there are a few problems with defining habit as past behavior frequency, which psychologists have been doing all the time. The first problem is how frequent is habitual. Um, you know that some, some habits are very difficult to acquire. For instance, take driving a car. It may take quite some lessons and so on and so forth. Um, whereas other habits seem to kick in instantly. The second problem is that frequent behavior is not necessarily habitual. Um, think about going to your, your GP, your doctor. He or she has undoubtedly sent numerous patients to the operation theater, and you just hope it didn't turn into a habit. <laughs> so a history of repetition is necessary, but not a sufficient condition for habit. The second pillar, automaticity, relates to what I mentioned as what I designated as the fluency of behavior. So habit has a high degree of automaticity. Now, John Barge, who is an um, imminent, um, a very, a very important um, researcher in the area of automaticity, he defined automaticity in terms of a number of key features. Automaticity is a very, um, very complex uh, construct, and he broke it down into um, processes that occur with minimal awareness, a lack of conscious intent, the difficulty to control very often, and efficiency. You can do automatic processes uh, simultaneously. Now, habits have a lot of these things. The third pillar is not so much um, a feature of habit itself, but more the way habits occur. Habits are context-cued, which means that habits are triggered in a context where behavior takes place by specific cues. Now, these cues can be anything. Um, we do most of our habits, actually, um, most of the time, more or less at the same place at the same time. So time and location are, not, are important triggers of habits. Specific, specific situations can trigger habits. Specific people, moods. Some people do particular things in a good mood or a bad mood. Physiological states, let's say hunger, 
the, 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 for instance, the late night check, late night um, uh, snack, very dangerous. Cultural and social practices. Um, habits are very often embedded in other behaviors and structures. So think, for instance, about um, binge drinking among uh, some youth groups, youth cultures. It is, it is not an isolated behavior of an isolated person. It is embedded in, in a culture. It's embedded in uh, what sociologists call social practices. So actually, um, psychologists and sociologists, and for those who are not familiar in this, in this field, um, tend to have a difficult sort of relationship sometimes. But sociologists also talk about habit, and they, uh, they are particularly... Um, stressing the, 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 the environment, the social practice in which habits are uh, embedded. And that's a very important arena for where habit, habits can be discussed between psychologists and sociologists. Um, it's important to note that um, the context cued, the pillar, the third pillar, um, implies that control over habitual behavior is sort of delegated to cues rather than stemming from willpower. We, we, we like to think about our behaviors being steered, being, being guided by our motives, our, our attitudes, and so on and so forth. However, habits are typically not very much doing that. Habits are automatically triggered by the environment and by cues. This is not in line with prevalent models of behavior in social health and consumer psychology. Um, these models typically, although they, um, they, are, they apply on usually repetitive behaviors, they don't include any measure of habit or past behavior. A little about habit strength and the measurement of habit strength. Um, actually, I could talk a long time about it. I'm not going to do that, obviously. But it's an important um, uh, issue in habit uh, theory. Habit theory has been stalled, actually, for a long time, particularly because there, has been, there have been no good measures of habit. And um, some years ago, uh, Sheena Orbell of the University of Essex and myself, we designed and published a measure um, which consists of a, a small questionnaire, 12 questions, um, which, which actually taps the... Uh, the different features of habit, as I, um, as I just explained. Uh, we, we published this uh, measure in 2003, and it seems to be picked up very well by the research community. Um, it's well received. It usually has good psychometric properties. Um, and I looked up some, um, some citations to this paper, which was published, as I said, in 2003, and it seems to pick up nicely in terms of uh, citations. Um, now, the motivation behind studying habits is very much guided by the notion that knowing much about habits um, may also help us in changing behaviors, may also get us uh, better ways of, of trying to change behaviors. And there are lots of behaviors that we would like to change or would like to uh, promote or, or discourage. Now, the most prevalent way of doing that um, from the perspective of change agents like policymakers is to provide information. So the idea is that providing the information that may change behavior is, is the way to go. And the underlying assumption is that our behavior is um, 
is ultimately guided by our considerations of uh, what, is, what is positive or negative, uh, risks and benefits, and so on and so forth. So take, for instance, the decision to take, uh, to take the car, which, is, which may be based on a number of considerations which, which then lead to an attitude, an intention, and behavior. Now, the, the idea behind uh, information campaigns, obviously, is to, to influence the balance of cost and the perceived costs and benefits, which then lead to new attitudes, intentions, and ultimately behavior. Now, you all feel sort of already that this doesn't really work, uh, at least not, most of, not, not very often. It's, it's not very... Um, it's not a very efficient way of changing behavior. Information campaigns have a very strong tendency to fail. And this is corroborated by meta-analyses that, um, that appeared the, uh, the past couple of years. Now, there are a number of reasons. There are two main reasons. Um, first of all, there's a fundamental lack of attention um, to the information that the campaigns is uh, providing. And secondly, um, campaigns may fail because information may change attitudes and intentions, but not necessarily reach behavior. Now, habit has a distinct role in these problems, and my early research uh, addressed uh, or highlighted some of those, uh, some of those um, uh, processes. Um, that research was done in the Netherlands uh, more than a decade ago, and we, um, we did quite some studies on transportation mode choices, so the choice between car and, trans and public transportation, for instance. And I just want to run you through two studies that highlight these two problems. So in one study, um, participants were um, brought to the laboratory, and we, um, we provided them with imaginary travel mode choice situations. These situations were um, not described to them, to them. Participants had to disclose the nature of these uh, situations themselves by acquiring information from a computer program, so information about um, what the situation was like in terms of um, distance, weather conditions, and so on and so forth. Now, we, were, we asked them to make travel mode choices, but we were interested in this study in particular in how much information they actually needed in order to make their choices across these 27 situations. We also measured participants' um, car habits, and as you can see here, those who had strong car habits actually needed much less information in order to make their choices uh, compared to those with weak car habits. Another study we performed in, um, we conducted in a uh, small village uh, in the Netherlands, which, uh, which had all kinds of transportation mode, mode options. So there were good railway um, connections, uh, there were highways, there were bus connections, uh, cycle paths, um, something that, um, that we are typically missing here in England. Um, and what we wanted to do in this, uh, in this study was to predict uh, car use behavior from intentions. So we held a survey, and in the survey we measured participants' intentions. We also measured their habit strength of using the car. And after that, participants were keeping a travel diary for a week, and from that diary we inferred their actual uh, car use behavior. Now what we found was, and this is... Um, for those who are familiar with multiple regression, this is a regression line. And what you see here is actually that intentions expressed in the survey were highly predictive of actual behavior later on uh, during the, the week that we, that we uh, asked them to keep the travel di diary. However, this was only the case for those 
who had weak car habits. For those who had strong car habits, they showed no relationship whatsoever, actually zero correlation, between their intentions and behavior. Now, these studies show that this, this doesn't bode very well for information campaigns. If we would file an information campaign, try to uh, influence considerations, we may uh, change attitudes, intentions, but those who have strong habits, if there's no relationship with behavior, then such campaigns are not really value, good value for money. There are some bright sides on the habit coin, and I, actually there are three bright sides. First of all, um, it may seem like an old tune, but we should absolutely not forget to try to prevent bad habits, bad behaviors um, to, um, to exist in the first place. So take, for instance, newly qualified drivers, um, particularly the male portion of this group, um, one of the most dangerous species in the world, um, we, we, we really have to, to keep on try, trying to get to prevent these guys from, um, from these behaviors. We also may focus on what I call habit discontinuities. Um, there are situations where habits are broken in a, a natural way, um, temporarily. For instance, on an individual level, it may be that people are moving house or changing jobs, um, starting a family, retirement. Um, on larger scales, we may, for instance, have a sudden change in infrastructures, like, say, other bus routes or um, closure of, of roads for, for, for a particular time. Legislation or even larger scale economic downfall. Now, these situations are windows of opportunities for change. Um, individuals have to reorientate. They have to negotiate new behaviors. They are in the need for information, and they may even deliberate about what, what to do in these situations. So the hypothesis is actually, in, in this, from this perspective, that these, in, that these situations um, are actually winners of, of opportunity where interventions may be more value for money than otherwise would be the case. We provided um, some circumstantial evidence for that. Um, and a study... Did, we did, um, and we, in this case, Ian Walker, Adrian Davis, and Michaela Jurasek, um, we, we are part of the Center of Transport, uh, for Transport and Psychology. Um, we conducted a survey here at the University of Bath among uh, those who worked here, and we asked them three key, um, key things. First of all, we, uh, we asked them how they commuted to the university, and from those questions we, um, we, we constructed a measure how sustainable their commuting behavior was. Basically, it was based on how much they used the car to come to university. Secondly, we measured their level of environmental concern. Now, not surprisingly, we found that those who have high, who'd had high environmental concern, they showed the most sustainable behavior. Not a very big surprise. However, we also asked them whether or not they had moved um, the past 12 months. And taking that into account, um, we saw that the, the higher level of sustainable commuting among the high environmental concern uh, participants uh, was only present among those who had moved recently. Now, there are alternative explanations for this, and we had a host of um, other questions that sort of took care of that, but at least it was um, circumstantial evidence for our habit discontinuity hypothesis. 
Recently, Martin Standish, Fiona Gillison, and myself, we started a three-year project, which is um, funded by the Medical Research Council, um, which capitalizes on this idea of habit discontinuity. And we are doing research on um, healthy lifestyle habits to promote healthy lifestyle habits uh, in the context of school-to-work transition. Now, the third um, bright side is actually a sort of flipping argument. Um, if habits are behaviors that are difficult to change, if habits are resilient, um, if habits are cue-controlled and automatic, then we would actually like to have um, desirable behaviors, so um, healthy, sustainable, and safe behaviors, to become habitual. So we may actually focus much more than so far has been done in interventions uh, on habit formation. Habit formation may therefore be included in, as an intervention goal in, uh, interven in behavioral change um, interventions. Usually um, those interventions sort of stop at the moment where behavior has been changed or not. Um, and that is sort of the effect, the outcome of, of an intervention. What I propose is that we should do studies which take a much longer perspective and focus in particularly on habit formation and monitoring habit formation um, as an outcome of interventions. Recently, we also started a project in Norway which is funded by the Norwegian Research Council, and I'm part of that, um, where we are looking actually in uh, the building up of stable um, food habits, food choice habits. Now, Habit formation is not only important as large-scale and part of interventions. Um, habit formation may also be part of individual lifestyle changes and may be very, an, a very important part of that. And I found a nice quote um, by uh, uh, the, one of the, let's say, the important persons in terms of positive life, lifestyle changes, the Dalai Lama. And he proposes seven steps to positive and healthy lifestyle change. And as you can see in his um, wonderful book, The Art of Happiness, um, creating habits is one of those steps. And, of course, positive habits. Let's go back to the three pillars. Um, now, some years back, um, I reasoned that if habits can be defined as repetition, automaticity, and being context-cued, um, we may not only have observable habits, the behaviors that I talked about so far, um, we may have mental habits as well. And I embarked on research on repetitive thinking as a form of mental habit. And I'm going to, um, to show you some of that research um, the remainder of this, of this talk. So that research that focused on repetitive thinking, and in order to position um, the concept of mental habits, I would like to, um, to make a distinction between, on the one hand, um, thinking in terms of content. So when you think, there is content. Um, for instance, when you think about yourself, you may have all kinds of beliefs about yourself, um, attributions, um, why certain things happen, um, worries, expectations, and so on and so forth. Now, in addition to the content of thinking, there's also... You may also look at the way thinking occurs, and there the mental habit construct comes into the picture. So thoughts may come with various degrees of habitual quality in terms of our three uh, pillars of habit, repetition, automaticity, and being context-cued.
Of course, the content of thinking is important in certain outcomes. So, for instance, the feelings of self-worth, uh, relationships, uh, dysfunctional behaviors, and the content is, of course, the first and foremost um, determinant of, that, of those outcomes. Now, the research I'm, I, I embarked on um, had an overall hypothesis, if you, if you want, um, stating that the process, the degree to which thinking is habitual, has an additional um, and significant impact on the outcomes as well, in addition to the, to the content. So take, for instance, self-esteem as an outcome measure. Low self-esteem may be, um, may be based on persons for, a person, for instance, thinking I'm a failure, people don't like me, I'm ugly, and so on and so forth. Now, we may have those thoughts every now and then, and actually it is sometimes very healthy to be critical about yourself, to learn from past mistakes, um, and so on and so forth. However, when these thoughts occur repetitively and habitually, um, then these, uh, this may uh, contribute to dysfunctional uh, outcomes. Now, we measured the habitual quality of thinking more or less the same way as we measure habits in the observable behavior domain. So we adapted slightly the, um, the measure that uh, Sheena Orbel and I um, developed, and we, um, we labeled this measure the habit index of negative thinking. Now, we refer to this in the sequel as, as the hint. Now, I'm going to run you quite quickly through a number of studies that we did, and I'm going to show the results in, in this format. So once you got used to this format, things are, um, uh, look very, um, very easy to follow. But I'll just walk you through it now here. So we are going to show you an outcome variable, which you see in, on the top, and factors that are represented by these boxes. The size of these factors indicate how important these factors are in explaining the outcome measure. Those who are familiar with multiple regression, um, these are the results of proportion of explained variance. So the contributions are of these different factors are relative to each other, so larger boxes have more impact. Um, they're independent of each other, and they're statistically significant. I don't include boxes if they're not statistically significant. Now, we did quite a number of studies on self-esteem, um, and... For instance, in one study, we presented participants with um, the so-called automatic thoughts questionnaire. It's a questionnaire, a standardized questionnaire, which, um, which presents 30 negative thoughts, and participants indicate the extent to which they have these thoughts. Now, we consider this as a measure of content of thinking. We asked participants afterwards how, if they had these thoughts like these, how these thoughts occur with using the hint. And as you can see in this graph, the hint had an, a significant contribution to the outcome variable self-esteem, which was also measured in the questionnaire. So in addition to the content, the habitual quality of thinking added to feelings of self, low self-esteem in this case. We're talking about negative thinking. Um, a replication of this study um, we did by asking participants to write down their own negative thoughts, and, and again we, um, we added the hint asking how these thoughts usually occur and the quality, the habitual quality of, um, of the negative thinking again contributed significantly to self-esteem. Self-esteem is usually um, assessed by a questionnaire. 
uh, where participants are thinking about questions like how much do you like yourself. We also um, try to, to focus on particularly on the automatic quality of habitual thinking. And in this case, we, we did that by um, using um, the so-called impl the implicit association test to measure self-esteem. Now, this test measures self-esteem not by asking participants to rate their own self-esteem, but we infer self-esteem from uh, associations um, they make between positive and, neg positive and negative uh, stimuli. And I just briefly can um, explain you how that works. Participants get, uh, are sitting in a laboratory, uh, and on the screen appear uh, words that are either positive or negative, or are related to themselves or not to themselves, and we measure, we ask them to associate these stimuli. Now, what we're looking at is how easy participants find it to associate negative things with themselves versus positive things with themselves. And the difference between that we take as an implicit measure of self-esteem. Measures are in milliseconds, so we talk about very, very small differences. When we look at what influences these measurements, so these implicit measures of self-esteem, we found that the hint actually was related to that. Um, the content measures didn't. So this sort of um, demonstrated that the hint was able to tap into the automatic qualities um, of, in this case, thinking related to self. An important study for us was this one, where we um, included the hint in a longitudinal study on depression. And this was done in Norway, um, where we had a battery of standard clinical tests where we measured, for instance, depressive symptoms, stress from work at home and home, dysfunctional attitudes, which is considered as a content of thinking measure. So, for instance, um, if you think that you can only be happy if you're perfect, then that's typically a dysfunctional attitude statement. Um, and we asked the hint. Then, nine months later, we reassessed depressive symptoms, and we predicted, in this case, the, the depressive symptoms from the earlier uh, assessment, the earlier measurements. And what we found was, and that was actually quite, quite remarkable in our perspective, um, we found that the hint added predictive value in addition to the standard clinical tests that are usually um, taken in order to, to measure the vulnerability to depressive symptoms. We also looked at mental habits in particular areas. So, for instance, job satisfaction and burnout. A student of mine um, did a study in a mental health institution among staff members of that institution. And we looked particularly at job satisfaction as an outcome variable. In this case, we had some control variables, of course, like gender and age, uh, current health problems, uh, the number of years they were working. But we, we asked them, in the, as a form of content measure, um, how their thoughts were uh, relating to three components that, was, that, was re that is relate, they are related to burnout, personal accomplishments, depersonalization, and emotional exhaustion. In addition, we asked, again, the hint, and we found, again, that job satisfaction was predicted not only by the content of thinking related to burnout, but also the habitual quality of these thoughts. Um, we embarked on 
a series of studies, actually, in an area which is um, also quite important, particularly among young people, um, which relates to body image. Um, ideas about our appearance are very important for our self-concept, um, the way we think about ourselves, how we evaluate ourselves, and body image is a growing area which actually has also its, its own journal now. Um, we did a couple of studies. Um, the first one, we, um, we had as outcome variable body image dissatisfaction. Um, we looked at, again, we asked participants to write down thoughts, negative thoughts that they had about their appearance. Um, we, we then asked them, again, to rate these thoughts in terms of how negative these thoughts were, and we asked them how these thoughts usually um, came about, so the habitual quality. And again, body image dissatisfaction was related to the content of thinking, but also in addition to the habitual quality of thinking. We replicated the um, implicit association test in this domain, and we also found, again, that the hint was related to that, and the content measures did not. A study we also did in Norway, in this case, among uh, a group of um, young people who are very vulnerable to um, <clears throat> body image dissatisfaction. And there's a growing body of literature on that, um, showing that body image dissatisfaction is related to um, not only low self-esteem, but also to eating disorders. Um, and in our study, we wanted to, to test the degree to which the habitual quality of body-related thinking um, was important for self-esteem and eating disturbance propen propensity in addition to the now traditionally um, um, established role of body image dis dissatisfaction. And indeed, we found that, that the habitual quality of thinking indeed was related to self-esteem in addition to body dissatisfaction and uh, to a lesser extent, but significantly so, to eating disorder propensity. We also embarked on studies that relate to the context-cued aspect, or the third pillar of habit. And the question here is, well, what actually triggers negative thinking, habitual negative thinking? What are, what are the cues that make people start to, to ruminate? One of the um, cues we tested was nostalgia. Um, having nostalgic memories. Now, it's actually a very interesting area where um, Professor Sedikides, who's very fortunate he's, he's here today, um, has done very good work on it. And the idea is that actually nostalgic memories have usually very positive effects, all kinds of positive effects. And we, we, we sort of were a little bit puzzled by that uh, because we found something else. However, it's, it's very, it fits very well. What we did in this experiment, we had two conditions. We had participants which we asked to write about everyday experiences, control condition, and participants we asked to write about a nostalgic memory. Now, the positive effects that, um, that have been documented appeared in uh, an assessment we did right after that. We assessed participants' mood, and what we found was that the nostalgia condition uh, participants in th that condition had a more positive mood than the control condition. We also had assessed the degree to which participants were negative thinking and the habitual quality of that negative thinking 
And we found that actually the mood effect, the positive effect, was there for both groups. So those who were low on negative thinking and high on negative thinking, they both showed the positive effect of uh, nostalgia on mood. However, later in the experiment, we, we had an assessment of depressive symptoms that they felt right at that moment. And then suddenly it seemed that the coin turned for those who had strong um, tendencies to think negatively. As you can see here, the strong hint participants, they scored suddenly higher on depressive symptoms. So apparently the interpretation that we put on this data is that, um, that nostalgic memories initially are very nice and then for those who are vulnerable to negative thinking start kicking in and start a negative thinking process. Food may be a cue for negative thinking, um, and perhaps some of you would like to have this now. Um, <laughs> we did a study recently, um, also a study in a laboratory, where, where we had participants who were high versus low in their uh, attitude towards their own body, so body um, satisfaction. And we presented participants with a word recognition task where they had to, um, to recognize whether letters on the screen were a real word or not. Now, we measured that recognition time in milliseconds, and we focused in particularly on words that were, that were indicating a snack food. And what we found, and what you see here, um, um, again, this is a, these are regression lines. Those of you who understand regression, you will see that. But I will, the essence of this, um, of this graph is saying that for those who had a positive body image, there was no difference in the speed with which they could recognize um, snack food words. Those who had a negative body image, um, there was a difference between those who were habitual negative thinkers, which are, um, uh, which are this, oh, sorry, um, this group on the right-hand side, they recognized um, food unhealthy food items much faster than those who uh, were not, were, had a negative body image but were not uh, habitual negative thinkers. Different, there are various interpretations of this, but we, um, tend to, we, we interpret this as also a cue for negative thinking. Finally, the last experiment I'm going to throw on you um, is that um, experiment we, we're doing some work on physical pain um, and also there you may distinguish a thinking process that is related to uh, experiencing pain. Now we, we do this, um, this uh, work in the laboratory where we ask participants to hold their hand in ice water and we measure the time that they can stand it. Uh, it, it can be painful to, to, to do that too long and we have different measures of, of pain. Now in this um, in this particular experiment, it was a bit more complicated than I explained here, but we, we warned participants that they might experience some pain. And we measured a um, number of um, assessments that are usually taken in the pain area. One is pain catastrophizing. So, some, so people dif differ um, in the degree to which thinking about pain is, is, has the, um, the quality of catastrophizing. Now, Catastrophizing is related to, the, for instance, the time that participants could stand holding their, uh, their hands in, in ice water. 
But we also asked the degree to which these thoughts came habitually. And we, again, the habitual quality of, um, of the pain catastrophizing thinking, in this case, mediated um, the effects on, on the experience of pain. Now, let me finish by saying something about the habit research agenda. So what, what are the things that we need to do and what are the things that I'm embarking on at the moment? Um, first of all, it's important to keep on um, focusing on behaviors that have consequences for health, environment, safety, and in particular, I'm um, trying to focus on the habit discontinuity hypothesis. Um, it's a sort of logical idea, and many, many people, when you talk about it, say, yes, of course, I, I understand what you're talking about. And isn't that very logical? So far, it hasn't been um, systematically um, investigated, and we hope to, to be able to embark on, for instance, a randomized controlled trial to investigate that hypothesis. Um, it's also important we... Um, as I said, we focus on habit formation and monitoring of habit formation. Um, there's not very much work on that so far. Uh, as I said, interventions usually stop with measuring whether people change behavior or not, but are not uh, much interested so far in um, the question, how long is behavior change lasting? Um, what, are, what are the relapse um, uh, uh, numbers and so on and so forth? So habit formation is important. Important also just to, to relate back to the definition of habit as psychologists always give them. Psychologists um, define habits as frequency of past behavior. Now, if you do that, then it is quite difficult in a number of areas to study habit formation and monitoring of habits. Take, for instance, medication. Um, if a person is put on medication and suppose that this person has to take a pill every day, um, then your definition of habit, as psychologists usually use them, doesn't get you very far in um, establishing whether this behavior is habitual or not. Suppose that, that, your, that your patient is a conscientious patient um, and therefore takes this pill every day, then the frequency of behavior is not, is not really informative about how habitual that behavior is. Measures like... Sheena, Orbel, and I developed um, can monitor habit um, formation independently from actual frequency, and therefore we can now monitor habit formation much better. There are lots of measurement issues. Um, for instance, the measure that I presented, um, we we are now embarking on on research to, uh, on the one hand, extend that measure to to have better measures of the different components of habit, and on the other hand also to, to try to come up with a even shorter measures which, which can be easier used in questionnaires. In the mental habit domain, um, there's at the moment research going on that we do on worrying thinking, um, and particularly worry, worries and anxiety as outcome variable. Um, a student, two students of mine uh, last year did um, some first studies on daydreaming and mind-wandering, which actually gave some, some very nice results. Um, I'm doing some work on habitual positive thinking, which is um, 
not the inverse of negative thinking. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, positive thinking is a different, has a different quality than negative thinking, and we are, we're trying to also to establish what the habitual quality of positive thinking can do. And finally, um, we sort of started to think about how to influence habitual thinking. And um, one, of the, um, one of the avenues we take is to think about mindfulness. Mindfulness is, um, is a procedure where, whereby um, a person is getting aware of what he or she is thinking, rather than changing the thinking. If you think about um, change in the area of thinking, then most of you are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, CBT, which is directed at the content of thinking, which is directed at changing thoughts. Now, that is in our distinction here that I presented the content part. The process part is not really um, very much attacked by, so to speak, by CBT, and mindfulness, pro mindfulness um, is, uh, is a sort of method to to target the process of thinking. And that's what we're trying to do now. We're bringing mindfulness in uh, now, uh, now in the laboratory. We just started an experiment on that where we have participants doing 20 minutes um, training of mindfulness and see what that effect has on some outcome variables right after that. Okay, um, so far um, I would like to end this talk um, by thanking a lot of people, as you can see. Um, first of all, I want to thank all my authors and co-authors on papers about habit, um, which were published in these journals, and some papers that are in the process um, being uh, submitted. Um, I also would like to thank a number of um, people and um, here. First of all, um, Professor Glynis Bakewell, VC, thank you again very, very much. I'm very honored that you that you're here, that you're chairing this, this session. The University of Bath uh, for providing me the opportunity to do this work and the faith the university has in me. Uh, Professor Roger Eatwell, the dean of our faculty for humanities and social sciences. Um, Professor Christine Griffin, our head of department and department of psychology in general, um, which has been from the start extremely supportive uh, of me and I'm very happy uh, to be there. Um, the admin staff, um, certainly the admin staff in the, um, our department, but not only that, of course, also the faculty and the university, um, Christine Dean and uh, Vanessa Cuthill, for instance, I'd like to thank for, for their uh, good support. Patricia Secchi, um, I don't know exactly where yeah, you're there, um, who has done a tremendous uh, amount of work to, to get this event um, going, and uh, thank you very much uh, for that. Ayana Sato, Charlotte, Charlotte McLeod, uh, the two ushers have been fantastic uh, in helping you getting here and will also assist you uh, in when needed. Um, they're my two PhD students. I'm extremely happy that they, that they want to do this. Molly van der Weij, um, I would like to thank you very much for, uh, first of all, the beautiful drawings that you, um, that you have made. And also want to thank you for the uh, immense support that I have got from you during all these years that I did this work on habits. So thank you very much, everybody, and um, thanks.
Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, I'd like formally to thank Baz for his inaugural lecture tonight. I thought it was a model, a, a brilliant exposition of how to make research accessible to the non-specialists like myself. Uh, as a non-specialist, I, I won't attempt to summarize it, but I, I particularly like the conclusion, the, the, the positive conclusion. And I mean, I think we all know that we're creatures of habit, though we don't always realize this. And I think one of the things that Baz particularly stressed was the way that we're not always able to change bad habits. And I think one of the things that Baz has highlighted today is the dangers of a whole series of habitual activities. I think at one point you mentioned binge drinking, which I habitually refer to as a gin and tonic or two after work. Um, <laughs> but ignoring my habitual use of terms that may not be quite the, the same as yours. Uh, I, I thought the, the idea of mindfulness and the idea of new ways of thinking which can overcome many of the disadvantages of traditional public education campaigns relating to obesity, alcoholism and so on, I think is very fertile. So I'd like to ask all of us um, to thank Baz once again for, saying, for showing us how social psychology really can make a major and positive contribution contribution to people's lives. Thank you, Baz. Thank you.